0: If you will, turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 4. We'll finish up chapter 4 this morning. You can turn straight to verse 43. So John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. So I'll read what John has written. He says, After the two days he departed from Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, which is interesting. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. So here's my objective today, so that we can get right into it. My objective is to see and better understand the relationship between Jesus and his works. So I want to see and better understand the relationship between Jesus and his works. And just as a reminder, John is writing this gospel as an apologetic. So if you were to look at John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, These things have been written that you might believe. So we don't want to lose that as we trek through this narrative, because when we see all of these things happening, they're happening for the purpose of bringing about belief in people. Whatever Jesus says, whatever he does, miracles, This is all for the purpose of bringing about belief in people. And the Lord does that in different ways. He might show you something that he doesn't show me. But he does these things. And these things specifically have been written so that we might believe. So that's the objective. To see and better understand the relationship between Jesus and his work. So to start off, it is interesting that John captures what Jesus has said about a prophet not having honor in his own hometown. And yet, when Jesus comes to Galilee, they welcome him. According to what Jesus said, they're not supposed to be excited to see him. They're not supposed to honor him, to venerate him in that way. So it has to beg the question, why are they honoring him? Why is Jesus coming there and they're doing exactly what Jesus said they would not do? They're honoring him, welcoming him. And why? And I think we understand it when we see the nobleman's request of Jesus and then Jesus' response to him. Because what does the nobleman do? He says, my son is sick, can you come heal him? So I would argue that what the nobleman was most interested in is what Jesus could do for him rather than Jesus himself. And, and, and this, is a, this is a, can be a murky discussion because we don't want to divorce the works of Jesus with Jesus. We don't want to dismiss the atonement. We don't want to m- dismiss miracles. We don't want to dismiss these things because these are a byproduct of who he is. But they are very different. Because we don't worship miracles, we don't worship works. We don't worship those things, we worship the miracle worker. And sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes if God doesn't respond the way that we want him to respond, if God doesn't perform the miracle in our lives, in our marriage, in our sick family, and all of these things, the question has to be raised, well, is that going to rob us of our joy? Do I love Jesus for who he is and who he has always been? And do I follow him, do I worship him, do I pursue him because of who he is intrinsically, who he is in his person, in his being, or do I truly love Jesus and follow Jesus and venerate him because of what he's done for me? And so it's important to, I think, dialogue over these things. So I think the text raises three issues, okay? Three issues. The first one, I'll I'll go through it pretty exhaustively, and then the last two are very quick. So the first issue is this. I think the issue that's raised here is, is the issue of pursuing Jesus for who he is as opposed to what he can do. Pursuing Jesus for who he is as opposed to what he can do. I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he responds in this way, when he says to this nobleman, who, by the way, would have been a wealthy man. He would have been in cahoots with the uh, higher-ups in society, the higher-ups in in leadership there, in authority. And so he would have had money. He would have had doctors. He would have had physicians at his disposal. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that he sought every physician in the land, so I'm not, I'm not saying that because I'm not trying to put something in the text that's not there. But I think it's a fairly safe assumption to think, okay, this is a dad who loves his son, who wants his son to live, and he had means to take care of his son, so maybe he's exhausted resources. Maybe he's gone to all the physicians. All the Bible tells us is that when Jesus arrives back on the scene, the nobleman who comes from means would have been well acquainted with the stories, would have been well acquainted with all that's been happening in that region because of what Jesus has taught and the miracle that he had performed. So why not? Whether it was a first resort or a last resort, why not? Why not go to this man? Why not? Is that not what the woman with the 12, 13-year hemorrhage said? You know what? If I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I could just get in close enough proximity to Jesus as if his power is contingent upon distance, or, or the lack thereof, she says, I just want to get close enough. There's something they see. Maybe they just want what he can do for them versus who he is in his, in his person. But I think the nobleman, because here's what's interesting, and why we want to focus on the nobleman specifically is because he expressed belief, and this is what I struggled with when I first looked at the text. Jesus is saying to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, but the nobleman comes to him expressing belief to begin with. He says, can you heal my son? He doesn't say, can, I, can, can you show me your portfolio? Can you show me your credentials? He just says, can you heal my son? So he believes that he can. But there's a big difference in believing in the abilities of Jesus versus the belief that this nobleman expressed at the end of the story. Not just him, but his entire household, which turned a completely different corner So it appears that this man's interest in Jesus goes as far as it is beneficial for himself. The value he sees in Christ has more to do with what Christ can do for him rather than who Christ is to him and who Christ is in and of himself. You see, this type of behavior should not be new to us. It's not that different because this is how the world works. There is a worldly system of value Right? We place value on one another in, in, in the world. Now, as Christians, hopefully I see Christ in you, you see Christ in me, and we know that our worth comes from Jesus. He has made us worthy because he is worthy. But in a purely secular sense, this is how the world operates. If you've ever gotten a raise, unless they're just out of their mind and just feeling really generous, you got a raise because you brought something significant to the table. They're saying, you're worth something to us. So we're gonna, we're gonna compensate you, because we're deeming you valuable. But this is what happens. This is when we get raises. This is why we have all-star games in basketball and baseball and all this kind of stuff, because those people brought something a little bit more and a little bit different to their respective tables. So they're held in higher esteem. They're held at a different place of value because of what they brought to the table. There's, there are hospitals that hired this doctor. He's, they call him Dr. Death. His name is Christopher Dunsk. And this guy was a neurosurgeon who traveled all over Texas working at all these different hospitals. And 33 out of 36 people that he operated on, this is a, this is a neurosurgeon. This is, if, if, if something goes wrong in a surgery that he performs, it's bad wrong, right? It's bad wrong. 33 of the 36 operations that he, that he performed were all botched. Either it ended in death, which was a few of them, or it ended in permanent uh, being permanently disabled. And he's in jail now. Long story short, but the question is, why do people keep hiring them, hiring him? Because when they checked his credentials, so they interviewed a bunch of neurosurgeons, and they said, okay, how many hours did you? How many hours in the, in the operating room as, as, as you were going through your residency? How many hours would you say that you were a part of? Or how many surgeries did you aid in or you, were you there for? And they said thousands. Every one of them, thousands. Thousands. They only have record of 100 for this guy. One hundred. And the question is, how did he keep getting into these hospitals? He would be let go from one because of all the things, all the lawsuits, and then he would go to another, and they kept hiring him. The reality is that, and it all comes down to the healthcare system, at least in his case, is that a neurosurgeon is a cash cow for a hospital. Christopher himself brought in $2 million a year to every hospital that he worked at. So it begs the question did someone just overlook this blemish on his record because of the value that he brought to the hospital? That's the way we work, that's the world's system of value businesses do it we do it all the time unfortunately we might even do it in the church let me give you an illustration you go to a dinner party you get an invite right you get an invite to a dinner party you don't know who's going to show up at this dinner party you just know that you've been invited and some big to do has invited you to this dinner party so you show up you get there and let's just say we can cross time and space and all that fun continuum and we can go to the past and all this and at this dinner party are a select few people one thomas edison right Thomas Edison's there, the inventor of electric power generation, Johannes Gutenberg, right? He's there. He's sitting on the other side, invented the printing press, Alexander Graham Bell, inventing the telephone, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, and then there's you. So you're sitting at this table, this who's who of people that have contributed great value to who we are as a society now and our advancements, and then there's you. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, you are great people, but none of us are Alexander Graham Bell. None of us have invented these things. None of us are Thomas Edison. You know, Travis Grove builds tires. He didn't invent them. Nathan runs wires, but he didn't invent the electric power generation, did you? You know? And uh, Leslie, you take care of people, but you didn't invent medicine, right? So... So you do great things, but you show up to this table and you're like, really, I've done nothing compared to these people. They have, they have been responsible for, for major advancements in, in, the, in the world as we know it. Kelly, Tina, Candy, Clayton, Shanna, anybody else who's an educator, you teach children, you teach students, but you didn't pioneer the major movements in education. And Charlie's out there, he plays with chemicals all day, but he didn't invent the periodic table of elements. Right, so we show up at this table, we're like, man, I've got nothing to offer. What do you do? Well, you know that whole electricity generated and all that kind of stuff? That's me. Okay, that's great. You know how you communicate across the world? That's me. That started with me. My name's Alexander. But then there's you. I I make tires. (laughs) You know, I teach. What do you teach? People. Oh, congratulations. But we're viewed that way because of the world's system of value. So, but here's, here, here's the point of all this. We have this world system of value, but the danger that we run into is placing that same system or projecting that same system onto Jesus, which is, which is what's happening here in this text, which is the big no-no. The big danger is this guy comes up and he places this world system of value. He reaches out to him because of what Jesus can do for him. And Jesus expresses his frustration with this and saying, man, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And then Jesus performs the miracle anyway, which we'll get to in a moment. But that's the problem. This man is placing a world's system of value onto Jesus and you just can't do that because Jesus is unlike us. He has an intrinsic worth and intrinsic value completely detached from his works. Let me explain, let me unpack a little bit. So our value comes from Jesus. He makes us valuable, we understand this. He, through the imputation of his righteousness, he gives us our value, he gives us our worth. Jesus didn't pursue you because you were of great value. Now, that may come as an offense to some because that is taught a lot. Jesus makes you valuable. Am I saying that he didn't love you? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But it wasn't that you were super attractive. It wasn't that you added so much to his life, that you were so much gain to his life, that you finally completed him. It wasn't that, I've heard somebody teach before that God created Adam and Eve because God was lonely and it was an answer to his loneliness. This is bad theology. Jesus came in love, he pursued you, he rescued you because of the glory of God, because of the great love of God, because of the attributes of God that would be displayed in rescuing you from darkness, which by the way, his attributes, justice, wrath, all these things are also displayed in those who are eternally separated from him and that glorifies God. That's a hard pill to swallow but it glorifies God. We couldn't make God more complete than what he experienced and what he had between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can't add to that. All three persons of the Trinity have been and always will be completely satisfied, sufficient, joyful, and complete in and of themselves. However, Jesus absolutely brings worth and value, joy and completeness and sufficiency and satisfaction to our lives. We have nothing to offer apart from Christ. In uh, probably half a year, we'll be in John chapter 15. And this is when this is the great, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he says then, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You abide in me, you'll bear much fruit, all these great things. But apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. There's nothing that you can do. Ephesians says, you weren't just in darkness, but you were darkness. You were dead. You were separated, estranged, separated from the commonwealth of Israel. But here's the question. Well, here's, here's a statement. Jesus and his worth, let me phrase it this way. Jesus is not worthy or to be held at a high value because of what he has done, but rather what he has done is the byproduct of his value and his infinite worth. Everything he does is a manifestation of his perfections. It's a byproduct of his person, of who he is. So let me ask you this question. Would Jesus be worthy of worship Would he be worth following if he never performed a miracle? Well, I'd hope you'd say yes, absolutely. What if he never became flesh? What if he never atoned for sins? And everyone goes to hell, would he still be worthy of worship? Absolutely, absolutely. Because, again, we don't worship him exclusively because of what he's done, but because of who he is. To say otherwise would be to say that Jesus gained value at some point He gained value once having brought valuable things to the table. So it's bad thinking. It's bad Christology. It's bad theology to say Jesus all of a sudden becomes value. Well, once he became flesh, he became valuable. Once it was beneficial for us, then he had value to us. That's not the way it works. Jesus always has been as God, eternal, unchanging, immutable, right? The same yesterday, today, tomorrow, I am the Lord, I do not change. All of these things apply to him and his attributes. They apply to his worth, his goodness from eternity past. So but although Jesus in and of himself has infinite worth, you can't divorce his works from his worth. So we've we've addressed that side. The side of him that is worthy, the side of him that just in his person, we can sing songs to him. We say you are great, we are great, you are great, you are great. But at the same time, the scripture tells us let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It says, praise him in his sanctuary, praise him in all these ways, but it also says, praise him for his excellent deeds and greatness. So the scripture, the scripture doesn't divorce Jesus, his person, and his works, so we don't either. But there's a way that we approach it. There's a perspective that we have that puts things in its right order. So we recognize that these are the miraculous things, but they come from the miracle worker. And those things are considered together as we worship the Lord in spirit and in what? truth. You can't divorce Jesus from his works. There's an inseparable relationship between Christ's power and Christ's works. It's inseparable. But the problem is when we detach the work from the worker, when we detach these things, the problem with seeking wonders is that it elevates the work over the source of the works. It elevates the miraculous over the miracle worker. Do we worship works? No. Do we worship miracles? No. We worship a miracle worker. We worship a sovereign Lord. We worship a king. No one looks at these works and just ignores where they come from. Maybe you've heard me share this illustration before. The tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa. You've heard of this? The Burj Khalifa, tallest building in the world, 2,722 feet in the air. That's a massive building. But what's impressive about the building is the foundation they had to lay in order for the building to stand as tall as it does without falling over. And so to build a foundation of such magnitude you have to have a lot of concrete and they used 57,900 cubic yards of concrete in order to make sure that this building could stand up in order to build a proper adequate foundation so to help you kind of understand those numbers let's talk of it in terms of gallons that's 11,838,900 gallons of concrete that it took to build a foundation that could hold up a 2,722 foot building. So if you don't understand that, let me share it with you in terms of swimming pools, okay? So your average swimming pool is 16 feet by 30 feet, around 8 foot deep, right? Give or take a little bit. That's 702 16 by 30 foot swimming pools filled with concrete. That's a lot of concrete. And we marvel at this. We think, man, this is fantastic. But we don't arrive at looking at the Burj Khalifa and say, man, this thing has just built itself. No. No. We look at it, we're impressed, and then our minds start to think, man, there are architects involved, there are builders involved, there are a lot of people, engineers, there are multiple types of engineers, there's a lot of things happening to make this happen. So then our attention goes to the people that are responsible, the builders that are behind the building. So yes, we ultimately marvel at God, so that we don't become like a Tower of Babel situation, but we marvel at God, yes, but we also think on a human level this is fantastic look how God has worked and equipped the mind to think through these things and to be able to build something like this so our our disposition our being impressed at this structure only goes so far because eventually we're like somebody built this thing And it's really quite remarkable. And this is the same scenario here. You can't just ignore the fact that the Burj Khalifa stands at 2,722 feet, but you most assuredly can't ignore the fact that there are builders behind it, that it didn't just happen from out of nowhere. Or didn't just, yeah, that was a double negative. Sorry about that. So um, it didn't just happen. But Jesus is different in the fact that he does create things out of nothing. It's called ex nihilo, right? There's the Latin phrase, out of nothing. Jesus just speaks, and he builds these things. So how can you know if you val- if, if the value you place on Christ is because of his person or because of his works? How can you know this? So let me go through some good questions or some good things for you to think through yourself by way of application. When you think of heaven, all right? Because we want to know this. Okay, okay, Alan, or, or maybe you're asking yourself, I need to really take some time to be introspective here and figure out where do I stand do I do I often overlook the person of Christ and just focus on the things you know Uh, you know Austin sharing the good news of Sarah and her her enzyme levels coming down and I'm like thank you Lord you've done this great thing and there I am again this is good this is fine but I'm reminding myself God you are good this is a byproduct of your goodness and you know what if her enzyme levels didn't come down you're still good you're still good And this is where the rubber's meeting the road for a lot of you Christians today. Caroline and Travis, Caroline just lost her grandmother. God could have spared her life, God could have kept her on this earth for another 5,000 years if he wanted to, but he didn't. And is God still good? Absolutely. This is what you have to reason through. God, you're still good when you don't answer these prayers. You're still good when you don't do these miracles. You know, Some of you have gone through some real hard family situations and are still in the middle of these things with husbands or wives or family or whatever. And you have to ask yourself, is God still good? I've prayed and I wanted God to restore this. i prayed and I wanted God to do this. Why did God not prevent this from happening? And the rubber really meets the road for you. And your theology is really put to the test. And God is really saying, I'm I'm putting you on a platform, and you have no choice but to jump. You've got to trust me. And 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 when you make that leap, you 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 can't you can't quantify, you can't mimic, you can't you can't even you can't duplicate the joy that comes from learning firsthand that you actually can trust in God's goodness. But the way God does that a lot of times is he (laughs) forces you to jump. Whereas other times it's through a good report of, yeah, your enzyme levels are back to normal. Maybe God just knows that I'm a sissy, he knows that I'm weak, and he knows that he can put me on that platform and I will say, I'm not jumping. Heck no, this is not going to happen, you know, and that's how I feel sometimes. I pray all the time, like, God, I'm weak. I'm so weak, Lord, I pray that I never have to face persecution because I am so weak. I'm afraid that I'll buckle under the pressure. And so maybe God's just being very very gentle with me because he knows that I'm weak. And maybe it's happening differently for some of yous, for some of you because he's strengthening you. So here's some questions that you ask yourself. What excites me about heaven? Right? That's a go-to thing. We think of that as Christians, that's kind of the pinnacle of things. We go to heaven. Yeah, we get heaven. We get these things. This is great. I think of heaven, right? What is heaven? Oh, we we read of mansions that are being built. We see this streets of gold, crystal sea, all this fun stuff. We entertain ideas of exploration and work and 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 harvesting and gardens and all this kind of stuff. We we think of these things. People have written volumes and volumes and volumes on a little bit of information that we've been given about heaven. And people talk about these things all the time. Some of them they talk about accurate things. Some of them kind of just go on talking about the possibility of things. There was one woman who wrote. This article and she gave like this top 10 list or top however many list of what she's looking forward to most at heaven and here's her list the force of gravity will be overcome i guess you're saying she can fly around admit that'd be cool if that could happen right that'd be awesome i hear that a lot you know gonna get to fly how do you know you don't know you don't know that stop saying that because you don't know and don't get my hopes up so shut your mouth so getting questions answered getting questions answered maybe 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 you'll know them already maybe you won't care maybe you won't care it's like dude i'm here whatever come what may music art glasses uh like not having glasses anymore <laughs> uh cooking no more cooking is what this this one particular lady wrote a flat stomach and hair because <laughs> dudes don't care about flat stomachs So you know it's a, a woman who wrote that because we're like we just, we just kind of let it grow travel options complete <laughs> flying without a plane it's like you know that's you know you can whatever complete recall complete recall really you want to recall all the all the junk in your life riddled with sin I, I don't I don't know what she means by that Bible doesn't say that gardens without weeds gotcha people lots of people the final answer the answer yes to are we there yet right so I'm like reading this thing I'm like that's ridiculous this is what this woman was thinking what else have we explored in our mind about heaven you know, I mean, you could talk all day. What if this is the, What if this is what's happening? What if this is what's going on? Some people think, well, maybe there will be an alien civilization that's there, that the Lord redeemed somebody on another planet. You know, I don't think so, but maybe some people think that. What does the Bible even tell us about heaven? There will be no more sin. We're pretty confident about that. We'll be granted new imperishable bodies. That's pretty awesome, right? No blindness, no deafness, no one who is lame. Scripture teaches us that. No death, no sorrows. The Bible says that perfect peace Isaiah uh, talks about that in the future as we get to be with the Lord eating from vineyards that we get to plant Isaiah talks about that as well so those are some cool things those are some things that I would put stock in because the Bible says it not cooking or travel options or you know those type of things when you pray do you ask for what's most beneficial to you or what's most beneficial for the kingdom of God this is a way that you can know wh- whether you value Christ for who he is or Christ for what he does, exclusively. And the whole concept of heaven is, do you get excited about all these crazy possibilities, some of them that I wouldn't be reaching that far, or do you get excited about Jesus, who, by the way, is the centerpiece of heaven? He is. Everything gravitates around Jesus. I mean, he's the centerpiece of heaven. Here's another question you've got to ask yourself to determine where your value is or what you're placing value in. In the midst of suffering, is your attitude more towards being delivered or endurance through what you're going through? Or when you're going through it, do you ask, what can I learn and how can I glorify you in the midst of this trial or in the midst of this storm or in the midst of suffering? Because everyone suffers. But I think what it looks like to say I am pursuing Jesus as his person more than what he can do for me. And I think that side, the person who's pursuing him as his person, loving him, worshiping for who he is and not just what he can do, I think that person says, in the midst of my hardship, in the midst of the crucible of fire, in the midst of my suffering, I will celebrate you in the way that that is done is by saying, how can I glorify you? Show me how I can glorify you. Show me how people can be pointed to Christ through this. Show me how I can be a witness. Show me how I can be an example. I think that's what that would look like. And I want to be clear before we move to the second issue, and they're short, is I want to be clear in saying there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with taking a truth with regards to what God has done and worshiping him. We say this all the time. It's absolutely right in what you should do. It is... It is, it is the framework for worship. It is what we've been told to do. Praise him, worship him for his deeds and his excellent greatness. What has he done? He's atoned for my sin. What has he done? He has, he, has, he has healed my infirmities. What has he done? You know He has shown me great grace, great mercy, great patience. He has helped to establish gospel-centered, gospel-focused relationships. He has given me a wife, which is a good thing. And I can celebrate him and praise him for all these good things, but that works together and most importantly, by not realizing, by, by, by not forsaking the reality that all of these things are a byproduct of who he is in his person. So that's the first issue that kind of surfaces in this text. And if you're taking notes and you miss that, the issue of pursuing Jesus for who he is as opposed to what he can do. The second issue is this. Listen quickly. The, the second issue is this. The issue of Jesus performing the miracle for the unbelieving nobleman. So we continue in the story. What happens? Nobleman comes up to Jesus. Please do this for my son. My son is dying. Jesus responds, how? He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. And then Jesus does what? He responds to the nobleman asking for a second time, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, your son will live your son will live. Jesus doesn't go to him. He doesn't say, show me where the boy is, walk me where I need to go. Jesus doesn't put his hands on him. Sometimes he does. A lot of times he doesn't. He just says, just like that, your boy will live. And it shouldn't come as a surprise. He spoke the world into existence. He spoke the universe, the cosmos into existence. With the word of his power, the scripture says, so it should come no, as no surprise. Yeah, your son will live. And it said the nobleman believed. And he went on his way. So there's this issue of Jesus performing the miracle for unbelieving noblemen. The nobleman was more concerned with what Christ could do at the moment. But who could blame him? His son's dying. When my wife came home and she said, my enzyme levels are 288 and they should be 40. I said, well, I'm going to ask the Lord to bring them down. I'm going to ask the Lord. I'm going to say, Lord, please bring them down, you know. Through my bout with anxiety, I'm asking the Lord, sometimes very selfishly, Lord, just remove this junk. I hate it. I hate it. It messes everything up. It's, it's, it's affecting my family and all these things. So I don't blame the nobleman. I don't blame him for saying, you know, help me, you know. He didn't know Jesus as Lord at the time. Keep that in mind. I do, but he did not. He just came in for what he could get, but that changes in just a moment. So there's two features. There's there's a There's a few significant features to Jesus' miracle, okay, just two. Feature one, the miracle itself was a testimony to the graciousness of Jesus. So if you're reading this text, what can I pull out from this text? What's, what's happening? What's a, what's a take-home factor for me? You know, One, and the big one, I think, is valuing Jesus for who he is versus what he does, doing both. And I think the other is, or, or one other is, seeing that this miracle is, is a statement that Jesus is making, is teaching us something about who Jesus is in his person, that he's gracious, it's showing us his attributes, that he didn't owe this man anything. He would have still been good. God's attributes, or the attributes of Jesus as the second person of the Godhead, his, his attributes were not on the line. If Jesus didn't perform the miracle, it's not like he goes away with a mark against him, and like, eh, I'm kind of, I'm lesser than who I was. That's not what's at stake. He doesn't change. He doesn't change. He doesn't become less perfect. He doesn't become less God if he doesn't do a lot of God-like stuff. That doesn't happen. So this is not Jesus' concern, but simply that he might show his grace. He says, your boy will live. He accommodates his request, not out of obligation. He would have still been infinitely kind, merciful, and gracious had he allowed the boy to die. Because what ended up happening to the boy? He did end up dying, along with the nobleman, along with everybody else that walked the earth during this time. They all die. It doesn't change the goodness of God. It doesn't change the person of Jesus. The miracle was a display of Jesus' grace. The miracle was the byproduct of who he is. It's always grace when Jesus works in our favor, but the grace of Jesus is never diminished when he does not. Jesus' miracle for this unbelieving man, I believe, points to the miracle of salvation for unbelieving men. Every salvation is a rescuing from unbelief. Regeneration is the precious miracle of God, replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh so that we might see and believe Jesus. Notice the language of Ephesians 2. It speaks of us being dead in our trespasses and sin. And then it says, you were all these things dead, estranged from God, you were absolutely Wretched. And the wrath of God was abiding on you. You were, a, you were a child of wrath, even as the rest. And then it says, but God made us alive together in Christ Jesus. So what are the mechanics of that? What happens? Well, Paul explains the mechanics just in those few verses from Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, by grace you're saved through faith. Faith was given with heart regeneration, which thus ensured life. It ensured That upon this regeneration of the heart, that this person would see and savor Jesus. And the person would very willfully, very desirously, if that's a word, call on Christ for salvation. And this is how this happens. And I think the situation or the issue with the nobleman reflects the goodness of Jesus in saving us from our unbelief. So that's the first feature I see as a part of two significant features to the miracle. The second feature is the miracle was a testimony to the limitless nature of Christ's power. You'll notice he doesn't go there. He doesn't go there to lay his hands on him. That's not required, it's not necessary. Distance has no influence over Christ's power, zero. Distance does not influence Christ's power. It does not affect it, it does not stunt it, it does not withhold it. Distance is not an issue. Jesus doesn't go to the boy. This doesn't mean, this doesn't really come as a surprise, right? This is why we pray for missionaries. This is why we pray for, for Doug and for Lauren, who are all the way over in China, while we pray for missionaries over in Ireland. You know, it's like, <laughs> because, because those distances don't play a factor in God's work. They just don't. You know, and if you really want to get technical about it, Jesus in the flesh couldn't be everywhere at one time, but, but God the Father is omnipresent, right? He's all over. So God is everywhere and involved in every situation in every circumstance which makes it simple to understand that distance is not a factor it's not an influence for the negative but distance doesn't influence Christ's power neither does time neither does time you know when you look back at Isaiah and Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 about what's going to happen and he, he gives this famous messianic prophecy and a part of that prophecy is that he says by his stripes we will be healed or we are healed you know anybody who followed god in the old testament anybody they're still saved by the righteousness by the shed blood of jesus and what isaiah does is he writes in what's called a prophetic perfect this is exactly what he's trying to say he's like this will not happen for another almost thousand years but it's applied now. It has effect now. That's the potency of the atonement, that it spans all of time for all who would believe. I mean, that's exactly what John 3.16 says, and it applies to the past. It applies to the, presen- uh, the present, and it applies to the future. Not that those who haven't professed Christ are in Christ now, but his death then is sufficient for all time and for all peoples if they would believe. According to the scriptures, so that's issue number two in this text. And just to remind you, the issue of Jesus performing the miracle for the unbelieving nobleman, and two significant features within that: those being, those being that he is, uh, that the miracle itself was a testimony to the graciousness of Christ. And feature two is that the miracle was a testimony to the limitless nature of Christ's power. And the final issue that I see emerge from this text is this, the issue of belief in Jesus' ability versus belief in Jesus as Lord. This is kind of akin to the first issue, but it's a bit different, and here's why. The nobleman expressed belief in Jesus' power to heal his son, but he expressed a different belief after the miracle was performed. When you look at the text, you have the nobleman coming up expressing belief in Jesus, this is why he's asked him to heal his son, because he believes that he can. He's heard the stories. He knows he changed water to wine. He's heard of all these remarkable things from Jesus' ministry thus far. And he says, look, can you do this? I mean, I know you can. Will you? So he expresses a certain belief, but not a belief unto salvation. And then later, after Jesus performs the miracle, it says, and then he believed in all of his house. Even though Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, Jesus was gracious enough to say, but I will yet give you signs and wonders. I will give them to you. Because why have these things been written? Why are these things taking place? So that you might believe. It was in God's grace and God's providence to save the nobleman. And he chose to save this nobleman by revealing to him his power. His power in saving his son. And at a deeper level by showing us, reflecting for us what it is for us to be saved out of our unbelief. Saved from our death. This nobleman easily represents those who profess Christ but refuse to subject themselves to his lordship. The Bible doesn't give assurance to anyone who simply believes in Christ's abilities. It just does not. It's not the way it works. Demons believe. They know that he's powerful. They tremble with fear. They shudder in terror and horror and fear. The heart of the heart of easy believism is this, that you can have all the trappings of being rescued from darkness... Without having to subject yourself to the Lordship of Jesus, and it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The nobleman nor his son had any hope in the world if all they ever did was believe that Jesus can. If it stopped there, that's not a belief unto salvation. That's not what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what it means to subject yourself to the rule, to the reign, to the governance of Jesus Christ. But the nobleman started looking out for a Savior, or started looking for a Savior but ended up finding a Lord. He wanted someone to rescue him from this situation, this context, and he found something that was so much more out of God's divine grace and providence. So what does Lordship salvation look like? Just a few little mentions here. Those whom Christ has truly saved, he has made you new. This is where it starts. This is the transaction that takes place. Whoever's in Christ is a new creation Paul says in his letter to Corinth in this newness we grow to hate our sin because of God's indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit so if you don't hate your sin that might be an indication that maybe you're not made new so something to consider we deny ourselves our most natural inclinations this is another part of lordship salvation so we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit wages war against the flesh the Holy Spirit is fighting for us I know there's a lot of questions that come up, and maybe you think, well, I seem to lose this battle all the time, but I know I have the Holy Spirit of God. You know, I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm saying I wrestle with that too. Holy Spirit, you're powerful enough to defeat all of my inclinations, and why don't you do it? I mean, I have that, that question all the time, and I can't give you the answer. I can just say I know what the Holy Spirit's role is. And I know that God is more powerful than my sin nature, but God won't strip me of that until all things are final, until the consummation of all things. So I have to endure, and I have to fight, as you do. So we deny ourselves as a part of lordship salvation our most natural inclinations and subject ourselves to the rule of God in our lives. This is in a very, very simplistic nutshell what lordship salvation looks like. And let me give you a few words of application to close. The ultimate goal for us is not to separate the person of Christ from the works of Christ we don't want to do that that's our goal we don't want to separate those two things we don't want to divorce those two things his works and who he is in his person we want to rightly distinguish between the two we want to rightly perceive the two to have the right perspective there is a way to be thankful for his deeds and then there's a way to be thankful for his deeds so how do we rightly interrelate with the person of the of, and the power of Jesus two statements The right way is that you view his deeds and you see them as providing a foundation for your worship. You know that you're right if his deeds provide a foundation for your worship. You know that he's good. You know that these things. You don't worship who he is, you don't worship those things. Or maybe I should say that Jesus and his person provides the foundation and those byproducts are his great deeds. But you know that you're wrong. If his power, or what he can do, fuels your self-interest. If your view of God, and I, and I almost get tired of hearing it, but it's accurate. If your view of God is more of a genie and a lamp, that's not healthy, and that's not good. And you have to ask yourself, for what reason do I most come before God? Is it to express gratitude? Is it to confess and affirm his goodness and his grace do I spend time just saying Lord I don't need I have a lot of needs but I'm here today just to express what you're worth in a feeble attempt but Lord receive it is your time spent there or is it more spent Lord I need this I need this I need this and I think there has to be a balance because we want to come to God for our needs right I want to come to God when my wife is not well. I want to come to God when I'm not well. I want to come to God when you're struggling with stuff and say, Lord, help them through this struggle. Help them to persevere. But that prayer is attached to something or it should be attached to something based on or founded on who Christ is in his person, who God is in his person. And I say, God, you are infinite. You are great. You are powerful. You are good. In your goodness, God, would you do this? If you don't do this, Lord, I still praise you. I still worship you because of who you are at your intrinsic value. You have infinite, infinite worth. So I think that's kind of where John is going. Hopefully it wasn't too convoluted for you to understand some of these things this morning as I work through. If it's hard to understand, it's not the concept. It's probably the one delivering the message. But I hope it connected some and I hope we can think and process these things a little bit. And I hope we become more intentional with our prayers, more intentional with our requests that we make known to God and, uh, and that God might be better represented in our lives and that we might show others that his person has so much more than just what he produces. But he in and of himself is infinitely worthy of our absolute and complete loyalty and praise. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, you're good. We thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are worthy of our praise. Lord, for me, this is a difficult concept. As I'm thinking through it, Lord, I praise you for all the mighty and great things that you've done because your word tells me to do that. But Lord, I don't want to fall short of praising you for just you, for just who you are. Lord, I look forward to heaven, and I'm, I'm one who thinks about those things. I'm one who thinks about, will I get to reunite with people that, that have gone before me? Will I get to talk to the Apostle Paul? Will I get to ask him what he meant by writing this in Romans? You know, Lord, I, I, I think about those things all the time, but Lord, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that the centerpiece of all of heaven, the centerpiece of everything that's in existence is Jesus. And I want to be most excited about Jesus and his person and just being in his presence and being able to worship him for who he is as well as what he has done. Father, we pray these things in your name. Make us more like you and your son, Jesus. Amen.